0: Hi, this is Keith Kefchen, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders and outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Welcome back to Dollars and Drivers. Today, we're going to be speaking with John Scott, former CEO of Belmont Hotels, and now a senior advisor to TPG Capital and the founder of Park House in Dallas. And uh, two main issues uh, or topics that I, I thought quite relevant is, one, John talks about career planning as being a non-linear uh, function. And so uh, most people think it's a stepped ladder. Uh, John really talks about how careers are really non-linear and people should treat them as such. And the other, I think, big topic uh, that uh, he spoke about uh, at length was how to scale a business, uh, especially the people component, how to evaluate talent, who to get on the bus, who to get off the bus, and do that as quickly as possible. So I hope you enjoy a discussion about general business and the hospitality industry with John Scott. Yeah, things are good. I mean, it's uh, it's been a crazy year, as you can imagine. I know that you've been involved, I'm sure, in a number of investments that, you know, have needed serious attention. Uh, My clients are in the same bucket. I mean, they range from, you know, local restaurateur who's struggling to stay alive to the biggest chains in the hotel and casino business. So it's uh, been a wide variety of impact to say the least.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I had a couple of board calls yesterday and, you know, we all, I'm getting tired of this. You know, we thought we had it all enough liquidity, enough runway and, you know, done all the right things. And then, um, you know, kind of all expected at least a little bit of stabilization beginning part of this year and into the spring, beginning of a recovery. And, you know, I, I'm chairman of a, you know, budget hotel hostel company based over in Germany. And, you know, yeah. Europe shut down and they're shut down through spring and, and uh, you know, so probably not not looking at much of a, an easing until the fall. So it's painful.
0: Yeah, I mean, every day you wake up to something different. I mean, who thought GameStop would be uh, the th- the the thing that uh, is is captured the uh, the imagination of Wall Street and uh, local investors, mom and pop investors, anyway? So it's like, what has happened? The world has gone mad.
1: I think that's um, largely our kids, my son and uh, his age people, basically getting on the chat rooms and trading up a stock that, you know, every, everywhere you turn around, they're closing a GameStop store. So I'm not sure the business viability, but I think it's... Um,
0: the business viability is crap. And so you, <laughs> you, you have to believe that, yeah, I mean, there's no way GameStop's worth whether it's $300 uh, at the moment or or $2. You just, it has certainly been interesting. But uh, again, I appreciate you doing this. It's been the boutique hotel players that have gotten uh, out of the box with us. But it'll be interesting to get your perspective as maybe a broader investor than uh, even just the hotel space. So uh, again, we'll dive in. And so maybe we can start there by just talking about, you know, what have been those personal and professional motivations, the things that you believe have have lended to your success and your rise in the corporate world?
1: Yeah. Well, when I talk to uh, young people are going through this process themselves right now, and I don't envy them. It's a challenging time. Um, sure. I, I kind of, you know, you look back on your career and you think it was planned and you think it's linear and you started at one spot and you think you're going to the other spot. And, and you look back and you go, there's a line through there, but it wasn't linear. And, and I would say this, so when I graduated from college, I was a history major. Graduated from Dartmouth College in 1987, 1988 were bad years on Wall Street. You know, my my peers were going to con, trying to go to consulting or investment banking, and and I thought I was going to be an investment banker, and things didn't work out that way in a really difficult year in Wall Street. With you know, 1987 was of sure, uh, yeah, ones. And so, um, you know, humbling experience. But but as I look back on it, you know, it's kind of. It took me down a different path. And I ended up going back out to San Francisco and, you know, talking with a bunch of people who told me, listen, you, you graduate from college, it's time to take a risk. Japan was going to take over the world back then, you know, in the 80s. And I joined a group that was called Inner Pacific. Founder was really uh, the, the backer behind it was Chuck Feeney, the original founder of Duty Free Shoppers. Um, I went to
0: school with his daughter. So I, okay. I, know, I know Chuck and Juliet quite well.
1: Yeah, a really interesting man. War polyester, flu uh, uh, economy, and uh, was one of the biggest charitable givers uh, ever. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, he he, um, he was uh, developing resorts in Asia that were really uh, all-inclusive, you know, water parks, you know, very similar to the Club Meds, but really targeted at the Japanese with an American spin they were called Pacific Islands Club. You know, I went to Saipan. None of my friends had ever heard of the island of Saipan in the mid Pacific, Micronesia. I was a management trainee making uh, less than any of my classmates coming out of Dartmouth. I was their first management trainee making my way from housekeeping to uh, accounting to front desk. I was a club mate for a while, which is, you know, basically you're teaching sports to all the, the guests. You know, it's, it's kind of the, you know, fate, I guess, takes you in a different direction. I got my operating experience early on. I took a risk and went to an area that was booming, but um, you know didn't have a lot of people like myself. They moved me faster than they should have moved me than I ever would have been moved. Whether I'd gone to investment banking or if I'd gone into a hotel company in the U.S., I went from assistant management trainee to assistant food and beverage director to general manager for a golf course and country club, and it was supposed to be a hotel. Uh, in Bali, um, back as hotel manager <clears throat> to Saipan, and then back to business school. So that's all by way of saying they moved me faster than I I, I should have been moved. I certainly wasn't qualified for most of those positions. I, I certainly worked hard and learned them, and ultimately I got a great experience, uh, you know, with hands-on operation early in my career, and that's hard to do, as you know, the kids graduating from a Cornell or hotel schools later on they kind of come out thinking that they're going to run something i came out wow. what the heck i was going to do and went in and got my you know deep operating experience early on that that i'd reference back to you know time and time again even though you know i, I was certainly closer to operations then than i than i was later in my career so it was taking that path least expected i'd say. you know
0: i don't even know if i i knew that about you and here here I thought we were good friends because uh, I've always thought of you as a finance kind of deal guy, and I think most people would know you or think of you that way. So it's interesting that uh, you were steeped in operations early on. I mean, do you chalk that up to just dumb luck, or is it just happened to you? Or uh, you know, how did you get on this this path? I mean, you you, you said obviously the the markets dictated some of that, but
1: Well, that that path I thought was going to be a year and I was going to come back. You get out there and, you know, the general manager was a a New Zealand guy. You know, my resume, Dartmouth history major, really didn't make much difference when, you know, the general manager looked at my, he was from New Zealand and looked at my resume all the way down to the bottom. And he sees Dartmouth rugby uh, and he goes, mate, you're a rugby player did you know my, did you know my, uh, my captain for the Ponsonby V rugby team, Guy Smith? And I said, yeah, he was our player coach. And he goes, you're hired. Um, wow. Uh, you know, again, it's these, you know, these, these odd moments where, you know, who knows what you, you had <clears throat> on a resume, who knows what you had in an interview, you got to be willing to take a little bit of a risk. There was also this view that, you know, Japan, I'm going to go out there and learn Japanese Something good was going to come out of it, even if I didn't think I was going to be in the hotel industry all my life. You mentioned something else, which is people view me as a um, finance or a, um, you know, a deal, a private equity uh, guy, which I definitely did. That was a chapter in my career. So if, again, as you look at the zigzag, you know, I did operations, went back to business school, swore I was never going to do operations again, worked for the Walt Disney Company, Disney Development, Disney Vacation Club, did two years of that and then went to work for private equity group Merritt's Wolf that was early in the 90s. We were acquiring luxury hotels. So I I was a better investor in in, uh, the hospitality world, having been steeped early on in operations. So if you thought about venture capital, the the people who go into venture capital or largely venture capital You know, they are either people that are technically gifted and have worked in those industries or they are finance people. I basically, in private equity and hospitality, I was self, you know, I was an operating guy who also got the finance background, which enabled me to understand and appreciate, you know, the levers in in the business. And our business in hospitality is very much one it is probably the most complex real estate investment because it is the people that view it as a pure real estate investment are the ones that have trouble because it is a complex operating business that right. happens to be real estate intensive. So that made me a better investor by understanding in the early years, you know, the operating component. And then I'll fast forward and I'll say the other the other touch point is that you never really get what you're passionate about out of your system. Um, you know, we were very successful at, at Merritt's Wolf. We bought you know six, four seasons, six Rosewoods, six Fairmonts, a couple of Ritz Carlton's and Park Hyatt's. And and we also bought two operating platforms. We bought Fairmont, partnered with Prince Waleed you know, and owned half Fairmont hotels. We liked the operating business. They were making a lot of money on us owning the real estate. You know, we thought we were pretty good asset managers and we understood the business. We bought half of Fairmont. And, um, and then we bought half of Rosewood with Caroline Hunt. Partnered with Caroline Hunt, and so we had an operating platform, and we had a portfolio of real estate, and we had capital capital dedicated to buying real estate when it was time right to buy, and managing real estate when it was better to manage and not buy. Um, after about five years of owning Rosewood, they asked me to run that business. You know, at the ripe old age of I think thirty six, you know, I said, you know, absolutely. So I. I got back into operations and, and really enjoyed kind of that component of, of business. I really yeah, let, let me let me
0: drop in there, because I, I think that's interesting. Now you're you're finally running a business end to end. And one of our hypothesis hypotheses um, in writing our second book is, is there a playbook of success? If you, I'll use the rugby example, the All Blacks, uh, well-known books have been written about that there is a system, and you need to fit into the all-black system. So, did you have a playbook? Did you create a playbook, or was it just day-to-day operating standards? End of story.
1: I think there is a playbook. I had definitely had a playbook, and I applied that playbook at Rosewood. I applied that playbook at uh, Balmond Orient Express hotels. I can't tell you that I had that playbook going in. You know, I was a you know fairly young, so I, I'd say. You know a couple of pillars of it. One is you get in and if you immediately apply your playbook and that playbook, that playbook needs to be modified and needs to be developed. So your first hundred days or so is really one about identifying and refining your thoughts about you know what the strategy should be. So it's a lot of getting to the properties, talking to people, getting to know your team, and getting to know your customers and getting to know your business. You hear that time and time again, but if you jump in and you think you know it, you think you've got it refined and figured out, I think that's a that's a fatal flaw of people that come in and just say, hey, I've got this, I've done this before. So get right. in there. There's two benefits to that. One is it does help you crystallize your plan, really three benefits. The second piece is you get buy-in because you've asked and you've talked to and you're getting your team aligned around what what is important the third piece is just that process alone helps you identify what I think is the second pillar you know who is a who's a superstar who's somebody you can develop and then who are those people that either aren't buying into your vision or aren't don't have the skill set to be successful in what you're trying to create you what did
0: know? you find at uh, at Rosewood and Belmont when you walked in and now looking back they're clearly well-known names but I would tell you that I, I think that I wouldn't call them fledgling businesses, but certainly weren't running uh, on all pistons.
1: No, no. And I, I think that's right. The, look, I would take them separately. You know, you got into Ro- Rose with a great name, you know, probably had more name recognition than, than scope or scale that, you know, Carolyn Hunt had founded um, with some of the top hotels around, but it, re- it really hadn't gone anywhere and done anything, you know, and the team was more of a, a general manager. It was more of a pure hotel operating team, and it wasn't a how do we scale this business and build a platform. So right. you know, we had we had to invest in some some players, some people. Um, we had to invest in development. You know, and so I had to do that at both places. You have to get in there and figure out who are the people to keep and who are the people that you need to you need to let go. What was the book? Good to great. Probably the first book I read when I stepped in as CEO. You know, there's, there's the phrase. You know, who's going to be on your bus? Mm-hmm. and quickly really got to get to that and and that's one of the most critical success drivers in in these businesses which is figuring out who who's going to be your kitchen counsel and the people that are you know really going to help you drive this business that you can trust and you buy into and those people that are actually either not capable or actually working against you um, who resent the fact that you' come in and you got to make those decisions really quickly and I'd say my I did, and you know, had a little bit of a reputation coming in, and you know, um, cleaning house. That's critical. The other side of it is, I'd say, my biggest mistakes in both of those instances was not making more change quicker. Uh, in terms of the people, interesting. Um, you know, you, you're 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 kind of looking at this and going, Jesus, I'm. You know, if, if I get rid of my COO and my CFO and my marketing. You know, and I've got to find people and I'm running without them, you're actually doing the work yourself until you can find somebody who can, who can do those because hiring is critical. But the reality is um, the faster you move on those, if, if you leave you know, those hard decisions till too late, you actually end up undermining your strategy and your ability to execute. So that, that is one of the most powerful things, getting the right team and getting the right culture going. I know you hear about that all day long, but when I, I will tell you this, when I went back to business school, I went to Harvard Business School and everybody wanted to take the finance classes and all the hard classes and everybody slept through the, you know, kind of the uh, culture and HR and those classes. Yeah,
0: all the org stuff.
1: <laughs> all the soft <laughs> stuff. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, the soft stuff is as important or more important than anything else you can do because the, the, the reality is if you get that stuff wrong, um, you will fail every time.
0: As such a young CEO, who are you going to for advice? You know, who are you bouncing these kinds of tough decisions on? I mean, how, how did you seek
1: counsel? You know, it's it's lonely being a CEO. You've got your team, but you can't always kind of engage with your team. So I, I would say I was fortunate in, you know, kind of that I had a external group of uh, of mentors. And then I had a pretty thoughtful board and so I'd say that that external group comes from the people that you collect over your career. And I've told this to young people as well. It's, you may not be in a place forever, but make sure you collect those people that were meaningful to you. And you've got to nurture those relationships over the years. So for example, you know, I had a guy from uh, uh, my Pacific Islands club day, Ron Chandler, who is a Cornell guy. And, you know, he. He was one of the original kind of, uh, you know, hotel gurus back in the day. Ron Ron was a just a sage, seasoned, pure hotel guy that I could go to. I had, you know, great partners on my board. My partner, Flip Merits uh, from you know Merits Wolf, uh, and my partner, uh, you know, he was on the board. And I had um, partner Bill Obendorf from SPO Partners that, you know, were the largest investor in Merits Wolf. You know, a private board functions in a different way that a public board does. You know, these are people I could pick up the phone with and ask questions related to strategy, test things out in an environment that was messy. So you could have messy conversations with these people as opposed to a formal board where you've got to be buttoned up. And you could have a conversation and test ideas. Keith, I always told my teams um, when they came into me you know, they come in and they have a, they want to have a meeting with me. I said, come in to me you know, and let me know what you want. Do you want to have a messy conversation about an idea that you have that is not fully baked in a in a low-risk environment? I'm happy to be that thought partner with you. If you come in and you say, I'm just here to update you and tell you what, what's going on. I want to make sure there are no surprises. I want to make sure I keep you in the loop on this, whether it's good or bad and all those things. So one is a messy conversation. The other one is a kind of check-in update. And the third kind of category that I'd always ask my team to do to me is if you need a decision, come in and then I want it baked and I want the facts and I want the data and I want your now behind it. I want it fully baked and I will give you a decision. You know, that, that, you know, in so many places you can't get decisions. So right. I, same thing to my board. I would let them know, Hey, we're going to have a messy conversation or, this is just an update on where we are. Here's some risks, here's some things that are going on. I'm not looking for anything for you other than to acknowledge. And if you have some insights, great, but it's an update or I need a decision from you. And so that's how I would use those people, whether it's a board, whether it's people that you, you know, you've worked with over your career, um, you know, be explicit about what you want from them and be open to having what I call messy conversations with great thought partners.
0: Great idea. Can you talk about adaptability, flexibility? It sounds like you had to weave. You you talked about tic-tac-toeing around your career, but your ability to adapt and have flexibility, important, not important?
1: Yeah, wow. Um, You know, very important. I might phrase it a different way. Um, It's similar. Curiosity, people that I've seen and good CEOs are are constantly curious. They may have a strategy and a vision and a deep understanding of the business, and they may have a playbook, but they're curious. And here's how I would describe that. So when I was running Rosewood, I'm running Belmont, I would look to the outside for inspiration as much as I would look on the inside for inspiration. So if you were thinking, so at Rosewood, it used to be that when I was there, and this is in the early 2000s, Hotel design, you'd look and you'd go stay in a, in a hotel room and you'd come home and you'd want to have the bathroom just like it was at the mansion on Turtle Creek. You would want to have the amenities that were just like what was in the, you know, the Carlisle. You'd want to have sure. the bedding that was just like you had in the hotel. But as as the world you know, and the affluent caught up and got ahead, they actually had nicer technology in their, in their homes, they had better, you know, finish a bigger, you know, bathrooms and bedrooms. And so you have to look and be curious at what's happening on the outside. And I'd say for reference points, it was companies like, you know, LVMH with their brands. It was companies like in the budget sector that were doing really interesting hospitality sector that were probably more innovative on operations than the luxury Segment. It used to be really hard to get Four Seasons to change their labor standards of anything. As an owner, it used to drive me crazy.
0: I mean, I hear you. I was at the Waldorf. I started my career there to change anything. I mean, once we did a renovation, we found real marble under like five uh, sheets of wallpaper and then fake marble, (laughs) foam marble on the last one. And you're going, what is going on? But uh, change was very, very difficult. And I could imagine in a place like Rosewood, in Belmont even maybe more so, very difficult yeah. to change.
1: I'd say the curiosity, and, and you try and embed that, and whether that curiosity translates into innovation and or creativity and adaptability and moving, it, it's all kind of what part of what I would say, some DNA that, that makes great companies. They're constantly looking to change and recreate. They they know what's their core, their purpose, their values, and all those things, which are an incredible anchors, but they're constantly looking for ways to adapt and change. And I'll give you um, another example on that. So uh, you, being able to adapt. You know, I come into Rosewood, I'm this young guy, and I'm trying to grow this business. And we've got the mansion on Turtle Creek. We've got Little Dick's Bay. We have a tradition. And this comes to branding, of sense of place, which was our core purpose and value. Each place had to be unique and different. And that translated in Caroline Hunt's mind to individual names on the property. Great, because you go to the mansion, and it is the mansion. You go to the Carlisle, it's the Carlisle. The problem that I was finding is that people couldn't connect the dots. If you're creating a brand and a business and you want to make it easy for your guests to go from one property to the next, Four Seasons, Ritz Carlton creates this ability for people to say, ah, it's it's a Four Seasons. I know what it's going to be. And then each property can be somewhat unique. And that's how we differentiate it from Four Seasons and the property was more homogeneous. But you need a brand umbrella that enables you to link. So I looked to the outside. You looked at companies like LVMH and, you know, they had portfolios of brands. You looked at leading hotels. It was a collection. I had a strong belief that we needed to be more brand forward. We needed to be a hard brand, Rosewood. That didn't mean you got rid of the mansion name. It meant that Rosewood would help celebrate the mansion name, Rosewood Mansion on Turtle Creek, Rosewood Little Dick's Bay. And part of this was self-serving. One, it helps your guests find the next property and the next property. The other piece that was self-serving is that it made the management agreements and the brand stronger because those hotels were stronger than the Rosewood brand. So when I went out to a new developer and said, we're going to make your property Rosewood Mayakoba, that was powerful. And it made that that sale easier than having to come up with a name that the owner actually owned and Rosewood didn't own. That was a complete pivot in strategy. It was probably the the unlocking move at Rosewood. And it was a move that I, you know, as I said, I had a playbook. That is um, uh, another pillar of my playbook that I took with me to Orient Express when we branded the, those properties, that collection of 46 hotels, Belmont, And then each of those properties would tie in, you know, Cipriani doesn't need a, a collection, you know, a, an umbrella ba- brand, but we needed a way for people to understand that these all link together and Orient Express train wasn't, it wasn't a brand we owned and wasn't a good connector of diverse set of portfolio.
0: Yeah, I, I, I bet you, I, I think the marketplace perceived that as uh, a risky move, I, I suspect. Uh, yes. I, I'm sure you had a lot of arrows being slinged at you, but uh, do you think like the, LVMH acquisition was, was that inevitable or was that just again, circumstantial?
1: No, I think it was inevitable. You and I talked about Orient Express before I even took this job. you or yep. you were advising them on you know leadership transition. and I, I think we all looked from the outside at what Jim Sherwood had created with this collected over the years. Uh, with envy, because these were great properties, but also with desire to figure out how to make that all work better. In a public vehicle, a collection of trophy assets, jewels that are hugely capital intensive, that are worth more than the EBITDA creation that they have, that need huge capital infusions that might be disrupted to EBITDA. You hear where I'm going with this? Yeah. That is platform to have in a public vehicle that that probably had, you know, too much debt, um, you know, so it had too diverse a portfolio that needed to be called and fixed. It had properties that you needed to close and reinvest and redevelop. You had properties you needed to get rid of. All that's very difficult to do in a public vehicle. Um, And so my strategy there was do the right thing for the right assets, put the capital in the Cipriani, the Splendido is where I could get a good return. Get the EBITDA up, collective brand better. Meaning, let, yes, I took arrows in the back for changing the name, but it turns out when I arrived, and you didn't tell me this when I was interviewing, <laughs> we didn't own the name Orient Express. The French National Rail owned it, and I will not invest a dollar in a brand that I can't own and control. So, you needed to invest in the brand. You needed to develop a capital light strategy where we could manage. So, you needed the people and the infrastructure to be able to manage third party. Yeah to sell some assets, get it to a good place. And then you need somebody who is willing to pay you way more than um, the market will recognize its worth. I, I've made my life in Rosewood and in Belmont Orient Express, extracting, well, enhancing the intangible value of a luxury good. And that's what Rosewood was. That's what the assets were. That's what the Carlisle was, the mansion was. You and I both know in the luxury hospitality space, it's not what it does EBITDA, EBITDA is important, but it is what you do with that asset and how you nurture that asset and how people perceive that asset that is going to result in the what I would call as a trophy sale. So, you know, your your question on Orient Express, I tried to shepherd it to that place. They weren't ready to do that, meaning to take that next step when I was there. We parted ways because we disagreed on that. And then ultimately LVMH was part was the winner in a process of a lot of people that were interested in the real estate they were interested in the brand and they were interested in what that could be moving forward
0: with all of your experiences you know this again bringing it full circle to the tic-tac-toeing of your career what do you think it takes to be a dynasty i mean people talk about again the all blacks people talk about the patriots uh every other sports analogy the Lakers, the Celtics, and so forth. What do you think it takes to be a dynasty?
1: You know, as I as I look at those, and yeah, you know, and and I look at businesses, I kind of get back to the, the earlier comment. You you have to be willing to when things are going really well to look at making creative destruction. You kind of got to be able to look at it and say, okay, I need to hire, bring in the next new team. I need to bring in the next ideas. And you'll see that time and time again with, with sports team analogy, where it, it can only go so long, and then you've got to recreate that. Um, so, so dynasties aren't forever, I'd say. Dynasties run their course, and those people that are able to survive and become dynasties again are the ones that are willing to do creative destruction, to rebuild that team, to to think differently about how we are doing the business. You know, if you if you thought about the companies like Four Seasons as a dynasty, how do they do that? How do they recreate themselves? Uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. If I did, you know, I might be running that company. But but dynasties run their course. Have to be humble enough to realize humble. That's the other piece. Humble mm-hmm. enough to realize that. You know, that runs for only so long and then you have to be constantly looking to the outside and for creative destruction to be able to figure out how you stay relevant as a business moving forward. So that that would be my response.
0: Last question, more for fun. Uh, Your favorite hotel, your favorite trip.
1: Wow. Wow. You know, when I, when I ran those companies, people always ask me that. And it's like you asking who your favorite child is.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: And so I, I would always describe it this way. I liked the more undiscovered properties. So I, I'll describe it this way. So if you thought about Belmont and you thought, okay, you know, it's got to be the Cipriani or it's got to be the Splendido, both in Italy, both iconic properties. And I actually um, loved the Perry cabin in St. Michael's. Nobody had even heard about that, but it was this great experience. I loved, uh, you know, in Rosewood, you know, people always talked about Las Fontanas. I loved Little Dick's Bay, quirky, old. It felt like I was in the know going to those properties as opposed to I was going to the iconic property that everybody knew. You know, the Hotel Caruso in Iguazu Falls in Brazil. Every, everybody would tell you it's got to be the Copacabana Palace in Rio. And I love this hotel that was up in Nguassu Falls, which is one of the wonders of the world. I like those properties that were a little more off the radar, that were steeped in history, that were unique. And I come back and people go, well, where'd you go? And I describe this place and they go, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it.
0: Perfect, right? <laughs> from,
1: from an experience perspective, I will say that... Um, I love the trains because they're unique and different. Um, everybody would say, again, was it the Orient Express train that you took from London to, to Venice? And I'd say that's a great train. But um, we also had the uh, Royal Scotsman that went all through Scotland. And I rented that entire train out for my um, group of, uh, of guys and their wives. We took over the whole train, played golf through Scotland, wore kilts on the train. Um, there are 28 staterooms on there. And we saw Scotland in a way that is magical, that you 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 know you, you wouldn't see by driving around or you wouldn't see by going to a hotel or going and doing little excursions. Mm-hmm. We saw Scotland by train, and it was a magical experience.
0: We'll leave it at that. I, I really appreciate you taking a few minutes.
1: Let's stay in touch. I'm glad this brought us back together.
0: Okay. Take care. All the best. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time. This is Keith Kefchen signing off.